0: yesterday and I've been emailing back and forth with her brother and um and um emailed a a couple prayers to them this week and just wanted to one of the things he sent to me said hello pastor Bill thank you so much for your prayers all the love and support from everyone is making this a lot easier to overcome so I wanted to thank all of you for your prayers one of the things that that we learned you know, at times like this, is that grieving over lost ones, it's not something that you kind of get over over a week or a month or a year. Grieving lost ones actually happens over a lifetime. So continue to pray for her family. And my prayer is that as we as a congregation, as we do more life together, we will have other times to grieve. And my prayer is that we will be always connected in authentic community so during those times when we fall apart, we are able to do that together. And so I just wanted to say thank you, all of you, for your prayer and, um, and continue your prayers, obviously, for her family. All right. With that, um, as Ernie said, we're in a series of sermons called I Am a Steward. And this is the second. It's only three, series long, or three sermons. So this is the second of the series. And we've grounded this series in the book of Deuteronomy. Book of Deuteronomy is an actually is an interesting Old Testament book. It's actually five sermons that Moses preached to the people of Israel right before they went into the Promised Land. And it's of course applicable to everyone. But one of the things I find interesting about the book of Deuteronomy is that it's particularly applicable to immigrants. First, second, and 1.5s. Because the people of Israel had been in Egypt. They left They got to the promised land and the first time they were there, they didn't trust God enough to take the land. And so God got really annoyed with them and said, fine, (laughs) Um, you're going to wander for 40 years in the desert until all of the first gens die off because you didn't trust me, except for Caleb who trusted God with his whole heart. And so, so then the first generation dies off And then Moses is now talking to the 1.5s and the second gens as they go into the promised land. And his great fear for them is that they would get settled in, that they would take the promised land and they would get successful and they would forget that God's the one who paved the way. And so Moses has instructions for the people of Israel as they're going into the promised land. So five sermons and um, the text that I'm looking at today is Deuteronomy 15. And in Deuteronomy 15, Moses gives, he does throughout his sermons, but he gives more very specific commandments to God's people. And in particular in Deuteronomy 15, we discover God, what's, what is called God's preferential option for the poor or God's preferential care. For the poor. And, um, and usually, you can't always trust Wikipedia, but whoever wrote this article on God's preferential option for the poor in Wikipedia nailed it. So I want to read to you, and I didn't put it up on the screen because it's about a paragraph. Listen to what, um, what this article says, and it just, it, it does nail it. The preferential option for the poor refers to a trend throughout the Judeo-Christian Bible of preference being given to the well-being of the poor and powerless of society in the teachings and commands of God, as well as the prophets and other righteous people. Jesus taught that on the day of judgment, God will ask what each person did to help the poor and needy. The Christian faithful are obliged to promote social justice and to be mindful of the precept of the Lord to assist the poor. According to said doctrine, through one's words, prayers, and deeds, one must show solidarity with and compassion for the poor. Therefore, when instituting public policy, one must always keep the preferential option for the poor at the forefront of one's mind. According to this doctrine, um, it implies that the moral test of any society is how it treats its most vulnerable members. The poor have the most urgent moral claim on the conscience of a nation. That nails the biblical teaching on God's preferential care for the poor. And that is what Deuteronomy sets up for us. So I first read the the chapter and I thought, thanks Danny for giving me that text to have to figure out. But as I dug into it, I found out that it's quoted and alluded to and quoted to, uh, quoted by Jesus, by John, by James, and by Paul. All of them allude back. It is one of the foundational Old Testament texts that explains God's preferential care for the poor. So let me read it to you. It's on the screen. And um, we're going to read verses 1 through 11, then we'll go back and walk through them. At the end of every seven years, Moses is writing, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land of the Lord your God. It will bless you in the land the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. So there will be no poor among you, If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry out to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin." You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give it to him because for this, the Lord, your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. So I want to share with you three biblical truths that apply in every culture and every age. And then I want to explore with you and, and get you to start to think how we're supposed to respond to these truths in our generation, in our age, in our city, and in our lifetime. So the first truth that is, is just throughout scriptures, it's God's preferential care for the poor. First truth is God wants economic justice for the poor. God wants economic justice for the poor. And that's why he instituted... Um, the seventh year of release. And it's very interesting. God, one of God's great gifts to his people is the gift of the Sabbath. And the gift of the Sabbath, um, and no other people on the face of the earth had the gift of the Sabbath. Every other people on the face of the earth, every day was just like every other day. Every day was like every other day. If there was not a weekend. Every day was like every other day. One of God's gifts to his people was the gift of the Sabbath so that when, when we... We work for six days and rest for a seventh day. We imitate God like he was in the day of creation. And we, the people of God, we can stop working. We can stop stressing. We can stop striving so that God can do a different work within us and among us, creating space for relationships and life. So that's the gift of the Sabbath to God's people. And it still applies today. In the Old Testament though, there wasn't just the weekly rhythm of the Sabbath, there was actually an annual rhythm of Sabbaths so that for six days, the people were instructed when they went into the promised land to work and do the, do the fields. But on the seventh, year, the seventh year, the fields were to be fallow and this releasing of all debts was to happen, which is a radical redistribution of wealth because God cares for justice for the poor. And it's interesting but tagged on to this there was also there's the weekly sabbath, there's the the yearly sabbath rhythm and then after 7 years of 7 cycles of 7 cycles was what's called the year of jubilee. So on the sabbath year debts were released. The year of jubilee all property rights were returned to those who originally, so that God could address generational impacts of poverty. I want you to see how radically God wants to address, wants economic justice for the poor, and wants to address systemic problems of the poor. We're not supposed to do it the same way today. We're going to get to that at the end of the message. But I want you to see how much God cares for economic justice for the poor. All right. It's not just in Deuteronomy 15. And so I just, I did, did a dive about poverty in the scriptures. And I just want to read you some scriptures. I actually want to overwhelm you with a number of scriptures. I'm going to read like seven or eight of them here so that you hear absolutely clearly how much God cares for economic justice for the poor. Psalm 82, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Psalm one thirteen. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory among above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash. Proverbs fourteen. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker but whoever is generous to the needy honors God. Proverbs 19, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him for his deed. Proverbs 22, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and will rob life of those who rob them. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much food, but it is swept away by injustice. A couple more, Proverbs 31. Open your mouth, judge rightly, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Isaiah 3, the Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord God almighty. When Jesus told the parable of Lazarus um, in his poverty, he, part of the point of that parable is that those whose hearts are hard to the poor, even if somebody came back from the dead to talk to them, they wouldn't soften their hearts. So truth number one, God wants economic justice for the poor. Truth number two from these verses, God is actually on a mission for a world without poverty. God's on a mission for a world without poverty. So in verse 4, we read, there will be no more poor among you. But then in verse 11, we'll look at in a couple of screens, in verse 11 it says, the poor will always be with you. And it sounds like they contradict, but verse 4, when it says, there will be no more poor among you, is tied to verse 5 that says, if only you will strictly obey. God's purpose is that his people would obey his commands to care for the poor, And if we did that, there would be no poor among us. We know this is true. We have known for a generation that we can produce enough food on the face of the earth to feed every hungry person. It's not a problem of capacity. It's a problem of the will. We don't want to do it enough to actually do it. There has been great progress in, in the last 100 years, 140 years. Been great progress in raising the level of extreme poverty. Raising people out of extreme poverty in our world. It's been, it's been astounding. And you can find statistics on it and look at the graphs. But we've also been told for a long time that we could have solved extreme poverty by now. If we wanted to enough. God says... That he wants a world without poverty, but it's going to be tied to his people strictly obeying what the Lord has commanded us. So truth number one, God wants economic justice for the poor. Number two, God is on a mission for a world without poverty. Truth number three, God calls us to open wide our hearts and hands to the poor. So in red here, go ahead to the next Okay, these are the things that we shall not do, all right? You shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you and be guilty of sin. Next screen. You shall, be, you shall give to him freely. Your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Those are the things we're not supposed to do. Here's what we're supposed to do. These are in purple. You shall open your hand to your, to your poor brother. Open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. You shall give him freely. And again, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your, hand, in your land. Three times Moses says, you've got to open your hearts. And three times he says, you've got to open your hands. And it's got to be both. Because just caring and feeling bad for the poor and not doing anything accomplishes nothing. At the same time, opening and giving money without caring in our hearts will not solve systemic issues of poverty. So Moses is very clear. We've got to open wide our hearts so that we are broken and saddened by the plight of the poor and the needy. And we've got to open wide our hands. We have to do something about it. When it comes to the issue of poverty, it seems like the one option that cannot be an option is for us to do nothing. We must do something about poverty. And so John, when he's reflecting back on Deuteronomy 15, in 1 John 3:17, he writes, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. It is simply a matter of righteous living that the people of Jesus care for the poor. A couple more scriptures, Psalm 29. A righteous person knows the rights of the poor. A wicked does not understand such knowledge. In Proverbs 31, we have this. It's it's kind of referred to in the scriptures as the Proverbs 31 woman. Second half of Proverbs 31 is what a godly woman is like. The first 10, 11 verses, which often get neglected, um, are what a godly man is like. And it's interesting. In Proverbs 31, a godly man, biblical manhood, we're told a godly man defends the rights of the poor and needy. That's in verse 9. And then later in verse 20, when it gets to start talking about godly womanhood, godly women open their hands to the poor and reach out their hands to the needy. So, we are stewards of God's preferential care for the poor. As the followers of Jesus, we are stewards of God's preferential care for the poor, which means we've got to watch our hearts. And we've got to open our hands if we want to join God in his mission that there will be no poverty on the face of the earth. That part's easy, okay? Any one of you could have read Deuteronomy 15, spent enough time there, and you would have figured out God really, really cares for the poor. It's easy to find the biblical truths. But God doesn't really probably care that much if we know the truths, if we don't figure out how to apply them in our world, in our lives, in our generation, in our city, in our culture. The hard work here is figuring out how. And um, I tried to think of, of one application that I could say, just everybody go out and do this. And I realized that. If we were to do that, come up with our one application, everybody goes, then maybe you'd have your hands open, but you wouldn't have your hearts open. And one of the things that has to happen if we're gonna address poverty in this generation, in this city, is we're gonna have to also open our heads. We're gonna have to get our heads into the game about what's going on with poverty. We have to figure out, what are we gonna do about refugees and immigrants across the globe? How are we gonna help third world countries in ways that don't hurt them? And if you don't know what that means, just go online or go to Netflix and watch the movie, Poverty, Inc. And in the movie, Poverty, Inc., I mean, people like Bono, people like Clinton, I mean, person after person person says, in that film, we blew it. We thought that the way to help the poor was to give them money. And all we did was keep them dependent and destitute. How are we going to address systemic issues of poverty in communities of color? What are we going to do about homelessness in Boston? What are we going to do about racial and economic segregation? How do we fix our schools in the inner cities because we know there is a school-to-prison pipeline? What are we going to do to fix that? What are we going to do with returning citizens who have spent time in jail and come back to society What are we going to do to equip them instead of rob them of the the resources and the skills that they need to become productive members of society? If we're going to address poverty, we have to address these kinds of issues in our culture. What are we going to do to develop entrepreneurs in poor communities so that sustainable jobs can be created so the community can rise up out of poverty? We know that brokenness in families correlates with keeping people in poverty. What are we going to do to support and sustain and strengthen families? Um, We also know that that in communities of poverty, there is very low civic engagement. There's a low number of people who are going to church, who are engaged in other aspects of the community. So if we're going to actually be stewards of God's preferential care for the poor, we got to get our heads into what's going on in poverty. Here, here's the good news. You guys are the smartest generation that's ever lived. I mean, they don't tell you that. and You're, gonna watch, you're not going to find a YouTube video of, you know, Simon Sinek saying you're the smartest generation ever lived. But you are the smartest generation that's ever lived. If anybody can solve this, you can address these issues and dramatically change the plight of the poor in our communities and in our world. But it's going to take... Some hard work of figuring out how to do that. And so I want to encourage every one of us. None of us can do everything, but each and every one of us can do something. And there's something about doing it together in the community of faith that has increased power to address the issues that are there. For one thing, when we do it together, we're not going to be as stupid. We're going we're gonna to bring our collective wisdom and insights to everything we do. So I want to give you some suggestions. I don't want you to do all of these. Um, I just want to prime the pump. Um, I'm going to run through some of them fairly quickly, so you might want to take pictures of some of the screens. I'm going to give you a couple of websites to possibly go to. You can't do all of this, but probably every one of you ought to do at least one thing on this list. So here's some ideas for how to start to be stewards of God's preferential care for the poor. Number one, read a book on poverty, okay? Read on poverty. Um, if you haven't read it before, start with When, when Helping Hurts, okay? It's up there. And um, it's not the most profound, insightful book written. It's a little bit dated, but it will get you to start to realize as a follower of Jesus, that there are dynamics of poverty that are very spiritually anchored, and it's just a good primer. I actually encourage you by, and I'm going to give you a couple other books in just a minute. I encourage you actually read together with others in a book club, so that you can talk about it, so that you can process and do something about it. So the first one is "Read When Helping Hurts." If you've um, read that, or you know you're not interested, here are three others. I asked Chris. Um, for some other books that he would recommend on poverty. And, um, and this is the list that he gave me. Um, first one, Evicted, Poverty and, Prover- and Profit in the American City. All right? He's gonna look at systemic issues that are keeping people in cycles of poverty. Second one he recommended, Half the Sky, Turning Oppression into Opportunity for Women Around the World. And the third book, Dead Aid, How Aid is Not Working and how there's a better way for Africa. So Chris is sitting up here, raise your hand, Chris. If you want other resources, this guy is the guy to get to. He'll give you stuff, he, he, he reads just way too much. <laughs> but if you wanna know about issues of, of, of the poor and issues of justice, um, talk to Chris um, as one of our staff, as our newest staff um, in, as director of missions and, um, and justice. All right, that's the first one, read a book, okay? Once you read one, you probably ought to go on to read another. Start with a simple one. And, and I mean, maybe every year or every other year, if you're going to steward God's preferential care for the poor, if you're going to be obedient to the truths in Deuteronomy 15, read more about poverty. Second suggestion, this is a website. You'll have to take a picture because it's going to go by too fast. Um, this website is Our World in Data. And it has really good data on poverty in the world. Um, If you mess around on the website, you'll get that graph that shows from the 1840s to now how extreme poverty has dropped dramatically, all right? But then they also make us think more perceptively as to it's not just a matter of how many dollars a day do you have to live on, but there are other issues of human well-being that have to be considered if we're gonna address poverty in the world. Just a wealth of information. Again, get your head into this game. Um, Third suggestion or idea I have for you is start thinking spiritually about economic systems. Start thinking spiritually about economic systems. There was no class in my seminary, and there probably still hasn't been to this day, on economics. And there should be. Because economics is moral. Economics is spiritual. And it's not whether it's socialism or capitalism or communism. That, there are spiritual dynamics for every single one across the, the, human, the ages of the human race, across the centuries. We have found out, Christians have found out, how to help communities and individuals economically thrive in any economic system. So start becoming aware of the spiritual dynamics of economies. Um, this website is, um, has got an article. It's called the, the um, it's here. Economic Wisdom Project. I actually despise some of this article. And so I want you to read it. And I hope you'll hate some of it. Um, But it starts to talk about things about our Christian stewardship responsibility. Interesting one. Our call to create value and not just make money. I don't know what your parents raised you to do. But most of your generation's parents raised you to make money. Not to create value. Creating value changes a culture. Creating money just gives more stuff, OK? So our call to create value, not just make money. The truth that economic systems should be grounded in human dignity that expands people's ability to be productive, and the need for us to take responsible action. So start thinking about, what is a biblically just economic system look like? Because we're only going to do Band-Aid stuff up here if we don't start looking deeper into the issues before us. A fourth suggestion. Um, Research justice as it pertains to the things that you buy. Your clothes, your apple products, your bananas, your coffee. Because too many scriptures accuse the rich of having the wealth of the poor in their homes. Too many scriptures, God says, the wealthy have robbed the poor. The way we do that in our generation is we buy clothes that are, are being made by, by little children. We buy products that are not part of any kind of fair wage system. This takes some work. I I tried to do a dive on this to give you some websites, and and this one's gonna take some energy. So, if you will dig in, if this is the area where you think, hey, this is what you wanna do, share that with others, and let's become collectively more aware of the issues of our purchases. A fifth suggestion, give financially somewhere, all right? Open your hands. and give away some money. Um, please do that wisely because there are pretty crappy nonprofits out there that are not stewarding um, the, the things that they're receiving well. So, so, but give someplace. Give to International Justice Mission. Give to World Relief. There are a gift to the Christian Community Development um, Center. I mean, there are are places to go that, that you can give that will make a dramatic difference. The nice thing, they don't have to all be Christian, but the nice thing is if it's a Christian organization that's been doing it for any period of time, they've probably thought through many of these aspects. And then they will send you newsletters of what's going on. And that will also continue to educate you on the plight of the poor. Um, let's see. Oh, but at the same time, when you give financially, do not fall into the fallacy of thinking that the way we're going to defeat poverty is by giving money. All right. The rich tend to defend define poverty as a lack of money. The poor tend to define poverty as lack of opportunities, as shame, and as hopelessness. Okay. So yes, give financially, but don't slide into thinking that that's going to solve this issue. All right. Where are we? Ba-ba-ba. Number six, do something for the poor and needy with your vocational skill sets. All of you are being trained or have been trained in some area in your vocation, in your workplace. It might be healthcare, it might be law, it might be business, it might be consulting, it might be teaching, it might be some area of human services. All of you have been trained and have some skills that somewhere could be used for the poor and the needy. So Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 says that, that one of the reasons that we work is so that we will have resources to give those who are in need. And we usually define those resources, oh, I work, I get a paycheck, I get money, I'll be able to have resources to share. But that's, those aren't the only resources. Your work has equipped you in some way to do something to help the needy and the poor. Figure out what that can be, and don't just figure out what that can be for, you know, this year or this month. Figure out what that can be ongoing throughout your career, how you can take skills and capacities that you've learned to some way care for the poor. And then last one I'll throw at you, um, proximity matters and relationships matter. There are some really interesting people thinking about poverty who are saying that programs to address poverty do not work but relationships between those who are well-resourced and those who are not actually can do sustainable change that can change people and change families and change communities, which means find some place to volunteer. Get to the Dream Center in Boston. Get to Emmanuel Gospel Center. Find some place to volunteer. And in this case, again, it doesn't have to be Christian. You can become a big brother or big sister, okay? Okay. But if you find Christian ones, then you'll get the undergirding of biblical truths that will be there. But I'm pretty sure that Cornerstone is not supposed to create new stuff out there to affect the city of Boston. I'm pretty sure we're supposed to infiltrate everything that already exists. Because we don't have to learn the the structures and the systems if we can pay attention to those who have gone before us and are wise. And we can volunteer. So I want to encourage you. Find some place to volunteer. Preferentially a place where you're gonna get to know the names of poor children or needy people or, or just people who are struggling, because there's a really good argument that we're not gonna really change the world, well, it's Moses, right? Until we give our hearts, until we know the names of the people that we're caring for. All right, I said before, none of us can do everything, but every single one of us can do something The truths are easy. God wants economic justice for the poor. God envisions a world where there is no poverty, and God expects his followers to join him in his mission as we open wide our hearts and our hands.